0: for a little bit, and so you can get ready to go to Isaiah 42, you just put your finger in Isaiah 42, or put a little, a little piece of paper in Isaiah 42, and then we'll, we'll go there in just a minute. But I want to start here in John 17, simply read, starting in verse 20, check this out in verse 20, alright, John 17, verse 20, let's dive right in. So what the Word says. This is Jesus praying for the church. This is Jesus' desire, his dream, his vision for his church. And this is what he's praying for his church. He prayed it right before he went to the cross, but he's still, I believe, praying for this very thing, wanting and longing for this very thing. He says this in verse 20, chapter 17. I do not pray for these alone, referring to his disciples, but also for those who believe in me through their word, which would be us. Verse 21, that they all may be one as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. This is what we've been talking about for a number of weeks, right? For a number of weeks we've been talking about being a family on mission, fulfilling the desire or the prayer of Jesus that we would be one, that we would really be a family, that we would really walk together in unity. But he says this, for what reason? He says that being one the world would believe, right? That when the church walks in unity, when the church loves one another, and is one, and we've said one, not just uh, uh, one like just getting along and not hurting each other, you know? But one as the Father and the Son are one. The same kind of oneness, and of course that oneness can only happen in Him, he says in verse 20, that they also may be one in us. And so by coming into relationship with the Lord... We come into relation with one another. This is what we've been learning for a number of weeks, isn't it? That we really are a family. That God is working redemption on the earth, and what He's doing to bring healing and restoration and redemption on the, on, in the earth, He's beginning in the church. That not only did He reconcile us to Himself, but He's reconciled us to one another. Amen? Isn't this what we've been learning? That at the cross He purchased our oneness. And that we really are a family. That's not just a metaphor. You know, like brothers and sisters, or like something you're just supposed to call each other. Hey, what's up, bro? Or like if you're a surfer church, what's up, bra? You know, like that kind of thing. That's always kind of weirds me out. But, uh, but really and truly, we really are brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? That when we came into relation with God... Sons and daughters of God, we became brothers and sisters of one another, that we really are family through covenant. And so this whole series, we've been learning about what it means to be the church, but more specifically, we've been learning how to walk in that family unity. We've been growing in loving and serving one another. We've been growing in speaking the truth in love to one another because we've we've learned that you can't have intimacy without honesty. You know, Clint was joking about people fighting during greeting time, but, you know, it's true, isn't it, that if you don't have fights... It's probably because you're not hanging out with each other enough, right? Huh? Huh? Yeah? I mean, the reason why we have conflict in families is because we are with each other. And, the, and, the, and the, what God wants us to do is not avoid relationship. See, that's the way that a lot of us deal with holiness, right? Well, I struggle with this sin, so I'll just avoid it. Well, I'm not a very nice person, I'm not very patient, so I'll avoid people. This is what we do. That's not what the Lord wants. He wants us to be in the church. He wants us to journey with one another. He wants us to be in family, because that's where we learn to love and to be loved. Amen? That's where we deal with those issues of hurt and pain that we've often picked up from dysfunctional families. And he wants the church to be the healing, the new family of God, where where we get whole, where it's done right. And we learn to be family. So we've been learning about that. We've been learning how to work through difficult situations and how to love one another and how to forgive and how to walk that out. But you know that Jesus, notice that Jesus is praying that we would be one, that we would walk in this family, in this unity as a family, so that the world may believe. See, the church is not just a family. We're a family on mission. We were not just created for relationship, but we were created for a purpose. Think about Genesis chapter 2. When God created the world, he created us to be in relation with himself. He created us to be in relation with one another. It's not good for man to be alone. But he created us for a purpose. Didn't he say in Genesis? Go, be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, rule the earth. He created us for a purpose, to have dominion over the earth, to literally extend his kingdom to the rest of the world. And so family has never been separate from having a purpose and a mission. But there are people who are like, I just want that family stuff, but they don't want to embrace the responsibility that they have, the work, the assignment, the calling on our life. They just go, I'll just go with the the hanging out and the fellowship stuff. I like that. You know, we'll go and hang out and we'll have fun and we'll have a cornhole tournament and Which is good. We like cornhole tournaments and we plan to have a lot more cornhole tournaments and things like that. Camping trips and all that kind of stuff. Why? Because we're a family. And families need to spend a lot of time together. And this is what the Lord has been speaking to us about. So that we would be a healthy family. We would, as a church, be a family. But the reality is, is that that's not all that it's supposed to look like. We were called to a purpose. But do you also notice, if you think about Genesis 2, he said in Genesis 2, Be fruitful and multiply, rule the earth and subdue it you also, we're supposed to fulfill our purpose through family. The way that in the very beginning of creation, the the, the people of God were supposed to have dominion over over the earth was through family. And so you have even some churches where it's just all about mission or evangelism or serving other people, but they forget family, don't they? Those churches, people just burn out and stuff. It's not one or the other. It's not like we need to be a family church or a mission church or even in your own life. It's not like, well, I either have to choose between being selfish or giving and not ever thinking about myself. But as we often say in our church, freely receive, freely give. God wants us to receive from him. He's he, we need him, but he also wants us to whatever we have received. He wants us to give it away. And so the Lord is teaching us about this as a church. This is more than, this has been more than a series This has been God's prophetic word to us, that we would grow as a family, but that we as a family would embrace our mission. See, if you're a part of this church, and those of you who aren't and you're new with us, we're glad you're here. You're invited on the mission too, because we are called to be a family and to love one another, but we are called to be a family who's partnering together in a mission, something bigger than ourselves. Because the reality is the church does does not exist for herself but for others, for this world. Think about that. If you, uh, why are we even here? Why is the church even here? You know, I've thought about that. Okay, you get saved. How come we don't just get like raptured all of a sudden? You know, you're like, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sin. I receive you as Lord of my life, right? Bam, you're just raptured. You know what I'm saying? Wouldn't it be amazing? Boom, you just go to heaven. If that's, what, if, that's, if that's the whole point of living, you know, just accept Jesus, and you'll get to go to heaven. You know, you get a ticket to heaven. If that's all that we're, it's, if that's the purpose of salvation, then why don't we just, boom, raptured? Well, guess what? It's not going to happen, right? I mean, he, when he comes back, we're going to get raptured, you know, when he comes back. But you're not going to, like, accept Jesus or, like, reach some point of perfection and then, poof, you're gone. Why? Because the church is not here for herself. The only reason why when you get saved, when you come to Jesus, you're still here. We're all still here so that we will be salt and light on this. We're here for a purpose. We're a family on mission. I remember, uh, you know, Clinton, I've talked about this a bunch. Uh, What does it mean to be the church? What does it mean to be the church? We've talked about this a lot, and we've talked about this concept of being a family on mission. And I've asked Clint before, and I, and, and I know how he would answer. I'm going to tell his story real quick. I've said, Clint, when did you experience church more than any other time? When did you experience church? Like when, What is church? Have you, ever, have you ever experienced it? And you know what he would say if I had, had him up here? He'd be like, when Dave Turner was the pastor. Just joking. <laughs> no, I'm just messing. No, he would say his missions trip to Africa. Amen? He would tell you of the team that he was a part of for probably a year as they prayed, fasted, hung out, had team meetings, prayed for one another, prayed for Africa, prepared to share the gospel, prepared to go overseas, and then they're on a plane together, Then they go and and they get to Africa and for a couple of weeks or however long they were there, they're doing ministry together, they're praying together, they're having these adventures together, they're giving their lives away together. I mean, Clint experienced the power of a family on mission. In fact, he experienced such unity that he wanted to keep it going, so he married Miriam. She was on the team. You know what I'm saying? He's like, hey, let's just keep this unity going here, right? And Miriam said, "That's what I was planning all along, right?" No, I'm joking around. She, she knew what's up. No, they were both on that team. And hey, that you know, that's partly. I think that's the way good relationships should come out. Those we're all seeking the Lord together, and then, uh, and God brings you together. But that he he talks about that being his experience of church. Why? It wasn't just a life group getting together once a week to like hang out and do a Bible study and pray. Although, that, I like that stuff. I like studying the Word, and I like praying. And you know, honestly, when I get together with people, I don't even need that necessarily. I mean, I love the Word. I love to seek the Lord with other believers. But seriously, in my life group, we have on Wednesdays, we're just hanging out over dessert and talking. I love it. You know, we don't even need an agenda. Just having fun, just being together is awesome. But what's going to really bring unity, what really pulls us together Is when we're on mission together. See, too often we've thought of missions as something that you do for a week or somebody you send overseas. Instead of realizing that there are lost people here, amen? This country is broken and in need of healing and transformation. This city needs Jesus. This community needs missionaries. And we're right here. We're the missionaries. We're on mission with Jesus, partnering with him, what he wants to do to bring the world to himself and to bring healing and restoration to the world. And we've got to understand that we're a family. Working together, partnering with Jesus, partnering with one another, on mission, right? Every, every time we leave this place and you go to your neighborhood, you go to your workplace, you're a missionary there. See, the reason why Clint can refer back to that time of that mission Team being the the, where he experienced family the most is because one, they spent a lot of time together and they sought the Lord together, but they also had an assignment. They had something bigger than themselves pulling them together. And so we like to think of ourselves at New Community as a family on mission, that every time we get together here, this is just a big family reunion. We're getting together to hear the word, to seek the Lord together, to love one another, to build relationships with one another. But every time we leave here, you're going out into the mission field. And our life groups, when we get together in our life groups throughout the week, that they would all be families on mission. That we would get together, we'd hang out, and we'd seek the Lord, and we'd read the word. And yet there'd be something bigger about our gatherings. You know, uh, the Lord has showed me that, uh, the Lord showed me a couple years ago that to call every life group to do outreach together. That maybe uh, every month or every six weeks, that a life group would have something that they do together. It could be that they help out with our adopt a block outreach. It could be that they help out with our food ministry. It could be that you uh, a life group does a uh, reaches out to their neighborhood and does a barbecue. What, whatever it is, the Lord has showed us that and we're still moving towards that direction. We've called every life group leader to move their group in that direction. We've said that's what the Lord is saying and we're 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 uh, working on giving resources where we're working on developing that in our groups. It's not something we just like programize and force or something like that, but it's something that we long to become a lifestyle. And even, even in our life groups, we challenge our life group leaders and we challenge you who are in life groups to don't, don't just pray about your own needs. Don't just come together and say, well, this is, I have a, a, a need about my job or I have a need about this, but pray about those you're ministering to. You know, each one of us, we're on mission with Jesus, and we always challenge you every week to have two to three people that you are praying for by name and asking the Lord for opportunity to share the Lord with two to three people who don't know the Lord, that you're asking for them to come to him by name. And I challenge life groups, don't just talk about your own needs. Say, hey, this is what's going on in my life, but hey, let me share with you about this family member I'm praying for. Let me share with you about a coworker and celebrate that, those are some of the greatest times in, in my life groups that I've, that I've led. I've, I've led a number of life groups. Some of them we've done, we've done barbecues where we, you know, invited the neighbors and stuff like that. And I remember uh, about a year ago, or no, it wasn't even a year ago, maybe six months ago, uh, Isaac and Sheree invited a neighbor. They had never even met. Invited, they came to the barbecue, and since then, Sheree and Isaac have, have been developing a friendship with them. It's awesome, just, just naturally loving people, getting out there and just being a neighbor. And just building relationship, but I love getting together in home groups where people uh, uh, they'll say, "Oh man, I just got to share the gospel with my coworker. Can we pray for this person?" And, and we'll all come together and we'll start praying for that person. And it's awesome to watch people come to the Lord, and we all we're a part of it. So when you're out there and, and you're on um, and you're on mission in your in your workplace, you're on mission in your in your in your neighborhoods. Don't feel like you're alone. But realize that we're all together. When I went to Indonesia a number of years ago, uh, I was on a team. And then they sent two of us into these villages. There was no phones. I mean, we're just out there in the middle of nowhere in these villages, hoping that these pastors are who they say they are. No, I'm joking around. I mean, this is like... And so we're out there ministering in all these different villages. But I didn't feel alone. I knew that my team leader and my team were back, you know, a couple hours away. I knew that we were going to go and reunite. It's not like I was left there in the middle of nowhere. And it's the same thing when you go to your workplace, when you go to your neighborhood. You're being sent out from this community to the village where you're assigned, right? We have villages here. They're called different neighborhoods and different, uh, different workplaces. Those are the villages that the Lord is sending us to as missionaries. And so we're a family on mission. And it's essential, you'll see as Jesus said, that they would be one so that the world would know. Jesus is saying right here in John 17, Jesus understands that the greatest thing that could ever happen is that the church would walk in unity. It would be the greatest witness of his redemptive power in us when we love one another the way that God has loved us. That's the greatest supernatural witness. And of course, it's the way it has to happen. No team can function without unity, amen? No team can function without unity. A team... Draws its strengths from each other. Can you imagine, uh, you know, I coach soccer. Uh, I mean, I'm, a, I'm not an actual coach. I'm help coach, I guess I could say, right? An assistant coach for my son's team. You know, at, 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 these guys are awesome. Last Yesterday they played a soccer game and they're getting better. You know, they're actually spread out. They pass a little bit. But you know, at first they steal the ball from one another. D- does that work very well when you're fighting your own team? It doesn't work very well. Can you imagine, like, the Lakers, like Kobe, just stealing the... I mean, I know he's not on the team anymore, but, you know, back in the day when they were really good, like... And they kept winning. Yeah. I mean, you know, just stealing the ball from one another and stuff like that. I, I the uh, Last Sunday, the, the wards had some people over to watch Avengers. They were like... They said, uh, yeah, John David's going to come over to watch Avengers with us. And I said, I just don't think it's right for my son to watch that movie without me. And so... <laughs> So I invited myself over, and um, I'm just messing around. But I mean, it's a good movie. Anyways, it's a good movie. It was fun. It's just a good you know, superhero movie. But without, without spoiling it, without spoiling it for those of you who haven't seen it, I kept thinking a house divided against itself cannot stand. The greatest scheme of the enemy is to divide us. might have something to do with the movie, but anyways, back to the real point. The real point is, it's the greatest scheme of the enemy is to divide us, and to get us to fight against each other. The greatest scheme of the enemy is to get him to f- get the enemy to get you to fight yourself with condemnation, or worry, anxieties, where you worry about your own money instead of being a giver. You worry about your own self instead of thinking about others, where you begin to fight. The enemy does this in marriages all the time. You begin to fight one another instead of actually hearing God for the solution of what you're dealing with, right? You begin to fight about the money instead of saying, hey, let's be a team on this. This is the greatest scheme of the enemy. Divide mom and dad, destroy the kids. Called divorce. This is what the enemy does in the church to get us to fight one another and to think about our pretty problems instead of what? Being united, working through conflicts by speaking the truth in love so that we can be united for the mission, for the purpose of bringing glory to God and seeing people to come to know him. Amen? And so this is what we need. We need oneness. We need family so that we can be on mission. But it's not one or the other. It's being a family on mission. We don't need, we don't need some churches that are doing the mission part and some churches that are doing the family part. We need churches we are that church as well as so many other in this area. We are that church that's a family on mission and as we wrap up this series um, I want to challenge us to, to really one more thing and so turn to isaiah 42 and I don't want to leave us with a challenge from the Lord another challenge as the Lord has been calling us to love and calling us to to move as a family on mission. I want us to see some things about this mission, about this call that the Lord has given us. All right, Isaiah 42, so that we can fulfill Jesus's prayer. Isaiah 42, starting in verse 1, this is about Jesus. Isaiah, I love Isaiah, talks about Jesus and the church so much. It's a prophetic book written at least a uh, you know, at least 400-plus years before Jesus came, and it's just so prophetically deep and rich uh, about Jesus and also about the church. And these are some of the—we're just going to highlight a couple scriptures in Isaiah. Behold my servant whom whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He's talking about Jesus, right? The Father is talking about Jesus here. Jesus is the Son that the Father delights in. Jesus is the one that the Holy Spirit has come upon. You guys know that the word Christ means anointed one. It means that the Spirit has come upon Jesus. And so the Father is talking about Jesus, saying that, the, that, the, that Jesus has been chosen, Jesus is delighted in it. And it says here that I have put my Spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Or Literally, Gentiles here means nations, all the different nations of the world. And he goes on and says he will not cry out nor raise his voice nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flask he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. What's it saying? What's, what's God saying right here about his servant Jesus? Jesus. What's God saying prophetically about the assignment and the purpose upon Jesus? It says right here that Jesus is going to bring justice to the Gentiles or to the nations. Gentiles referring to all the nations that are not Jewish. Remember that God called one man Abraham. And the people of Israel are the descendants of Abraham. But it was through those people, through the people of Israel, through whom God would bring the Messiah and reach all the nations. It's always been God's heart to see all the nations come to know him. But notice right here, it says that God is going to bring forth justice to the nations. Justice. And he goes on, you can actually see he makes sure that you understand again in verse 3, he will bring forth justice for truth. Verse 4, he shall not fail nor be discouraged. Referring to the fact that Jesus is resolute, he's passionate, he's unrelenting, he does not get discouraged, he does not get weary, he does not get tired. For 2,000 years, Jesus' kingdom has been advancing And he has never wavered, he has never gotten discouraged or distracted. He's set on the same vision, the same goal, it says right here, "Till he has established justice in the earth. I want you to understand, that's the ultimate goal that God is after. Justice to the earth. See, for those of you who don't know, God's plan was not to get you to heaven. It was to get heaven on earth. See, one day, Jesus is going to come back, And he's going to rule the nations. He's really coming back physically, bodily, right? He died. He rose again. He is alive today. And he's coming back and he's going to rule the nations with his law. It says right there, he's going to rule the nations with his law. What's his law? Love. Love others as you would have them love you. It's a Sermon on the Mount. See, when Jesus came the first time, what did he do? He came preaching and teaching the way of the kingdom, right? He came to tell people what God is really like, and he said, what did he say when he first came? Repent, for the kingdom of God has come. What was he telling us? The king is here. The kingdom has come. This plan of redemption, this plan of bringing restoration and justice to the earth, it has arrived. See, the Old Testament is God's preparation for this plan. But when Jesus came to earth... That was D-Day. It was when he broke in and began to establish his kingdom on earth and bring restoration to the world. And, of course, he's di- he died and he rose again. And by, the, by his blood that uh, was shed, that's the cure for our sin, right? So that our sins can be forgiven, so that we could be made right with God. And yet, though the kingdom has come and has not come in full, the kingdom has come. Jesus has come. He's died and risen again. The kingdom is here, but not in full. We're still longing for the day, and we're still waiting for the day, and we're still preparing for the day when Jesus comes back, and he establishes justice to the ends of the earth. Justice to the ends of the earth. And other scriptures in Isaiah, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 11, describes the government of peace being upon Jesus, that his government will bring peace, wholeness, will, dis- will end war. There'll be no more war. That when he comes back, And he establishes his law of love in the nations that that literally animals will live at peace with one another. So extensive will be this restoration that even the natural order of things will be restored before before sin. That, That a lion and a lamb will lay down together and a child will lead them, it says in Isaiah chapter 11. That's how extensive the justice will be. Justice. What does that mean? Justice. To end oppression. To break off tyranny. It means to deliver and liberate people who are in bondage. Whether it be economic or political or spiritual, in every aspect, Jesus is going to come and bring freedom and healing. Acts chapter 4, the apostle Peter said that Jesus has risen and he's seated at the Father's right hand. Everything's under his feet and he says, until God restores all things. That's what this is talking about. That one day he will come back and he will restore all things. Every aspect of society he will restore through justice and righteousness, establishing his peace. And he will be the leader who leads all nations. He'll be the king of kings and the lord of lords who leads all nations in his way, in the way of the kingdom. What you, what you read in Matt, uh, uh, Sermon on the Mount, just the way, uh, the way of love. This is, this is the ultimate goal. This is the mission that we are all called to. This is what it means when, when Jesus said, So? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. You ever wonder why it said, and his righteousness? Seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness. And then Jesus promised, and all these things shall be added unto you. What is that? That if you will reprioritize your life and care about the thing that Jesus cares about, the advancement of his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven, he says, I'll take care of you. I'll take care of all your needs. But this is what it means to seek first his kingdom. Now, we, we know, and, and, and Kurt talked about this a couple weeks ago, where he, he, he showed us from the scriptures that every single one of us is called to evangelism, which simply means sharing Jesus with others, inviting them into a relationship with God right through Jesus. It says in Matthew 28, go, make disciples of what? All nations. But what happens when all nations are discipled? They'll be blessed. When all the nations learn to walk in the commandments of Jesus, it will bring the blessing and restoration to those nations. And so Kurt showed us really well that last a couple of weeks ago, he showed us that every single one of us is called to share that message. But I want to focus on something today, that not only are we called to bring the message to people, the message that Jesus Christ is Lord, the message that the kingdom has come, and you can come into the kingdom by accepting Jesus as Lord and following him. We are also called to be agents of that restoration. See, the, the most important thing we could do is share the gospel with people. Why? Because it's the difference between giving a man a fish versus teaching the man to fish. When you lead someone to Jesus, we're not talking, when we're talking about evangelism, we're not talking about evangelism for evangelism's sake, like a little notch in your belt little jewel in your crown. We're not talking about like one religion trying to convince another religion that we're right and you're wrong. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everything was created for him in the first place. He is the rightful ruler and he's the only true and right king of this world. And he's coming back. He's coming back. And so to seek first his kingdom means to put that as the priority of our life. And so when you lead someone to Jesus and they make Jesus the Lord of their life, now he can change them and lead them and through them bring that restoration he wants to bring on the earth. But we as the church aren't just supposed to be like, I accepted Jesus, now I'm going to make you accept Jesus. And, you know, that is so core to our mission. At the very heart of our mission is a message. But it's more than that. We are literally to partner with Jesus to bring this justice to the earth. We are literally to be agents of restoration. Let me show you this. Go to Isaiah 61. Just jump over to Isaiah 61, a couple chapters. Isaiah 61, again, this is about Jesus and the church. <clears throat> Verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Remember, Jesus quoted this for about himself in the Gospels. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that they may be glorified. Is this what Jesus did when he came the first time? Right? Did he not come to preach the good news to the poor? He came, he came proclaiming, You guys, you don't need to worry. Father loves you. And when he says poor here, in the ancient times, most of the time, it was the rich taxing the poor so that the rich could live in luxury. In the days of Jesus, the rich were under a tremendous weight of taxes, but it didn't go to them, right? So it's going to be kind of hard to, like, make an exact parallel to our society. But there was oppression nonetheless, And he came to those people, many of them who were peasants, many of them who were servants and did not own their own land, to preach the good news to the poor and say, Father knows what you need. What was he doing? Bringing them to the Father, bringing them back to God, showing them what it looked like to walk in the kingdom. And Jesus would teach how to walk in the way of the kingdom. He would preach the good news. What would happen? Did he not deliver people from demonic bondage? Right? He healed people. Why? Because demons, that's injustice. That's bondage. That's oppression demons are like bullies sickness and disease that's not supposed to be in god's creation the king came and said that's not supposed to be in my creation sickness disease demonic oppression that's all because of sin that entered the world that's all because of demons that have been allowed to run amok but jesus came to say no no, no, no. i'm the rightful king here the king has come let me show you that the king has come be healed what was he doing liberating people delivering them what about the women who were caught in a, in a woman caught in adultery, or women living sinful life like Mary Magdalene? What did he do? Deliver her from demons, deliver her from that lifestyle, right? Church tradition says she was a missionary. Talk about turning someone's life around, right? This is what Jesus did. He delivered people from demonic bondage, set them free from the power of sin, preached the gospel to them, set captives free, healed broken hearts. And notice what it says there at the end of verse 4. That they may be called trees of righteousness. You see that? That they may be called trees of righteousness. The planting of the Lord. Planting of the Lord, meaning that it's by his grace. We've been saved by grace, amen? Nothing we could ever do. It's the planting of the Lord and that he may be glorified. Not for us, not for our kingdom, but for his glory. But notice what it says. That they may be called trees of righteousness. Who are the trees of righteousness? The ones who used to be bound, broken, oppressed, demonized, hurt, sin, sinful. And he makes those people trees of righteousness. Now, you've, many of you heard me use this meta- metaphor before. I, I just can't get away from it. How do you get righteousness fruit on the earth? If seeing nations transformed, if seeing nations blessed and healed, if seeing nations walk in freedom, if seeing people walk in wholeness... Children no longer being abused. Homes being whole and safe places. Neighborhoods. Neighborhoods not just being safe outwardly, but safe internally, and where people love one another and serve one another, and walk in the way of Christ. If that is the fruit of righteousness. Right, so everything that the kingdom is, let's call it the fruit of righteousness. If we, just say, if we just say the concept justice, just think kingdom on earth as in heaven. Righteousness. Kingdom on earth as in heaven. How do you get righteousness fruit? Well, you need lots of righteousness trees. Right, If you're going to get righteousness fruit on the earth, you need lots of righteousness trees. And how do you get righteousness trees? You plant a righteousness seed. This is what Jesus has done through the gospel. That every time a person accepts Jesus Christ as Lord, his sin is the cure to our sin. I mean, I'm sorry, his blood. I'm sorry, I mixed it up. His blood... He did not sin, in this case, you didn't know that. He never sinned, but he bore our sin, right? And his blood is the cure for our sin. And those of you who, you know this, and if you don't, this is good news. That when you put your faith in Jesus, all your sin forgiven, you're made righteous in Christ, the Bible says. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. So how does God get his righteousness on the earth? Through planting a righteousness seed in his people. We we become like Christ here on the earth, Christ living inside of us. Now, think about this. If you have a righteousness seed in you, that causes you to become what? A righteousness tree. And what do righteousness trees produce? Righteousness fruit. So if Christ is living inside of you, what should your life manifest? Christ. If the one who loves perfectly is living inside of you, what should your life produce? Love. If the righteous one is living inside of you, and if he has made you absolutely, completely righteous, then what should your life produce? Righteousness. Amen? This is what he's always been wanting to do. See, if you believe, if you understand the gospel, that because of the blood of Jesus, all by his grace, he has made you righteous. And that's what is going to manifest from your life. And that's exactly what's going on here in Isaiah 61. That Jesus takes broken and hurting people. Jesus takes sinful people who are oppressing other people. And he forgives their sin and makes them righteous. So that they'll become trees of righteousness. And listen to what happens in verse 4. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up the former desolations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. Who are they? The trees of righteousness. And who are the trees of righteousness? The people who used to be broken. You see what he does? He takes the people who are broken, he makes them righteous so that through them he can bring his righteousness to the earth. This is what the gospel is all about. And of course, like I said, at the very heart of our mission is to tell people about Jesus and lead them to Jesus. But we are not just called to tell people about Jesus. We are literally called to be Jesus to them. Do you remember he said this in John 20? As the Father has sent me, so send I you. That we have the same mission As Jesus, we have the same calling as Jesus to partner with him for his kingdom and for his glory. And if he has made us righteous, we are to produce righteousness. What does this look like? Let me show you some scriptures. Just listen to this. Listen to some of these. You can turn there with me if you want, but let me read to you a few things in Matthew 25. Matthew 25, right out of Jesus' words. Verse 31, when the son of man comes in his glory, all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a sheep, or I'm sorry, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you blessed of my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in, or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it. To me. That's justice. It's righteousness. That if Christ is in me, that I live the life of Christ. That if I'm righteous, then I produce righteousness fruit. And what does the scripture say that looks like? It looks like feeding the poor. Caring for the sick. It looks like what Jesus did. Where he laid hands on people and they were healed. Or they were were hungry and he fed them. It looks like what Jesus told us it was supposed to look like. Going to the one who's in prison. Being there with them. Seeing the person without clothes and clothing them. It looks like us tangibly loving and tangibly serving people. And helping those very ones who are oppressed. And not just in deed, but in word. Preach the gospel to the poor. But it also is not just word, it's also in deed. You see, that the very ones that God has restored, we are to be agents of restoration to the world. We are to be salt and light to this world. Amen? If there's darkness in the world, why? Because either light is not there, or light is hiding. Right? And if there's decay in the world, why? Because either the salt is not there, or salt has lost its flavor. We are to be salt and light to this world. We may not be responsible for everyone's problems and mistakes, but we are, we've been learning, responsible to them, aren't we? We are the solution to the problems in this world. And either there, there is darkness and decay in the world because either we're not there, either the church is not there, because we have checked out. But what would it look like for the church to be fully present, shining as lights in darkness, being salt to the decay, righteousness where there's injustice, bringing bringing Jesus to people and inviting them to meet Jesus, but even more than that, being Jesus to them, loving them the way Jesus loved them, serving them tangibly and meeting their needs. Listen to James chapter one. I think this is uh, pretty clear. James chapter one. James says this, verse twenty six. If anyone thinks, if anyone among you thinks he is religious, and by religious he's meaning, um, you know what we might use the word spiritual. Sometimes nowadays we use the word religious in a negative sense, but he's using it here in a positive sense. To be somebody who loves God and knows God and walks in God's ways. He's saying, if anyone among you thinks he's religious, does not bridle his tongue but but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Listen, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. To keep oneself unspotted from the world is to walk in personal holiness and purity and righteousness. This is what Jesus did. He delivered us from the power of sin. We died to sin so that we could live in righteousness. And this is important as believers, that we would walk in holiness and righteousness. And and this is referring to us personally walking in that freedom that Jesus has purchased for us. Personally walking in that righteousness so that we give no room for the enemy. But it's more than personal righteousness. So often the church talks about that. Well, I would hope we talk about that. But, you know, so often the church talks about personal purity and personal freedom, personal things going on in your life. But it's not just about that, is it? It's about taking care of orphans and widows in their trouble, being there for people who are hurting. In that way, Jesus extends his kingdom to the ends of the earth. The very ones that God has restored and saved and made righteous are to be the salt, the light, the agents of transformation. The very ones who are righteous are to be the very ones who bring justice to the earth. And yes, one day he'll come back and he'll finish this work. But we've been commanded very clearly in Scripture that it begins now. The kingdom has come but not in full. He told us what to do in the in-between time. Sit around and worry about your money and work all the time and only care about what's going on in your life but go to church once a week and maybe read your Bible if things get really bad. Right? Of course not. Jesus didn't die to give us fire insurance. He didn't die so he could sit in a chair. He died to raise up an army to multiply himself. Trees of righteousness, producing righteousness. In Romans, Paul calls us weapons of righteousness. So if you don't like the tree metaphor, just go with the weapon one. I like both. Think about what Jesus says about God the Father. He sends his reign upon the good and the evil, the deserving and the undeserving. God is kind and loving to all. He's good to all. And we should be the same. Amen? I mean, what would it look like to fulfill this? What would it look like? You know, there's some of us who are called, you know, let's say, again, like Clint over here, who has said, man, I want to see that principle of love. I want to see that kingdom principle of love worked out in economics, something that the Lord has put on his heart, and so he leads an organization called Experiment Inc. Or I've got... um, or, you know, someone's called to, you know, start World Vision or something like that, you know. And you just, World Vision where they sponsor children and, and seek to, uh, you know, end, end uh, oppressive poverty, transform systems. Some of us are called to that. But do you ever notice in the Bible, there's no command in the Bible to do something like that? It doesn't say, start a nonprofit organization. It doesn't say that. I, I really struggle with this because for a long time I've, I've studied a lot about justice. I've studied a lot about poverty And a lot of the ills of the world, I've really sought the Lord and sought the Scriptures, to be honest with you, wrestled a lot for a long time to really understand what's God's answer to these things. Why are they there? Is this complicated? Why is it there in the first place? You know, A lot of it has to do with systematic oppression, economic oppression, and tyranny, and unjust governments, and things like that. But there's a lot of reasons why there's poverty or... Uh, uh, urban poor out there in the world, or even in our country, there's a lot, of, uh, some, a lot of problems. Or some of the worst things that I can ever imagine. Human trafficking. People are enslaved to do things that outside their will. Horrible. You know, why is it there? And what's God's answer? And I've sought this answer for so long, and uh, I'm not going to go into all the answers. But one of the things that really hit me as I studied these things, and read a lot of books about this stuff, uh, one thing that hit me is what I've already said, is that God's plan is through the gospel. He makes people righteous. I'm convinced more than ever before that the only thing that will change this world is the gospel. Think about it. What will stop a trafficker from trafficking a child? What will stop a parent from selling his daughter into slavery? What will change an alcoholic dad from abusing his children? Or a mom to repent, get help so she can love her kids? What it's only the gospel. Only the gospel changes the heart of the oppressor and only, only the gospel heals the heart of the one who's been oppressed. It's the only answer for everyone on every level. Only when Jesus is Lord is there true freedom and healing and restoration. So I'm convinced of the gospel. But I was hit by something one time, years ago, probably like a dozen years ago. I'm studying, I'm studying, I'm studying. I'm looking in the word of God. I'm studying justice, righteousness. And literally the Holy Spirit's like, you ever notice, I never told you to solve the whole problem? I never told you, I, you, you, he said, you know, he showed me, in the Word of God, he goes, do you see in the Word of God where you're supposed to, like, change political and economic systems? Do you see that? I go, no, what's up with that? And I really had to wrestle with that, so, you know, because I want to know what the Word says. I really struggle with that. God, where's the, you know, where is it? Now, I will tell you, leaders in the Scriptures, leaders. Kings, presidents, you know, we call presidents, but kings, rulers. Let's say you're a CEO. If you're in leadership, there are some very specific commands. Kings are called to justice more than anyone else. Like if you're a CEO, there's a certain way that God would hold you accountable to the way you lead your company and serve your employees. So there's commands to leaders, but not all of us are leaders. And the Lord showed me one time. He goes, you want to know why? It doesn't say, you know, change the world. I didn't say that. Because not everyone's called to be the CEO or the president. Not everyone's called to do Experiment, Inc. like Clint. But he's called to do that. But guess what everyone is called to do? That. Orphans and widows. Care for the poor. Feed the sick. See, some are called to leadership. Some are called to be kings. not everyone. Guess what we're called to do? Go make disciples. You can do that. Take care of orphans and widows in their trouble. You can do that. You see that the scriptures did not call you to change everything just to do your part. God does not put on you the whole weight because why? He said, I'll build my church. In fact, in Isaiah 61, I didn't read it to you, but in Isaiah 61 it says, God will cause righteousness and praise to spring up in all the nations. He will cause the righteousness to spring up in this community if we'll do simply what's put right in front of us. The command of Scripture, every one of us has a calling. And some of us, like I said, are called to be leaders. But let's say, Clint over here, who's, who's called to lead Experiment Inc. and transform economics in our nation. Okay, that's what Experiment Inc. is about, is Change, uh, Just bring in that principle of love into the economics of our country and see, see the church influence economics here in this country. It's, it's powerful, and it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. But do you know what? Just to use Clint example, if as he's working for Experiment Inc. And, and those who work with him, you know, Robert, he ignored the homeless man right next to him or his brother or sister that's hurting, would not be doing what he's called to do not every one of us is called to be a pastor not every one of us called to be a ceo or a king or a leader or a nonprofit leader but every single one of us is called to be what a follower of christ and that's as simple as it needs to be that when you wake up tomorrow or when we leave church today what are you supposed to do whatever he puts right there in front of you whoever is in your life is your ministry what does this look like what does this look like? I mean, I want to say this. On a on a big scale, the vision of this, on a big scale, yeah, is to saturate this whole community. Saturate this whole community with churches that are being salt and light in their neighborhoods. Loving the poor and loving the lost and bringing them to Jesus. On a big scale, can you imagine? Think about just real, you know, this is kind of a big and a small scale. But can you imagine on a big scale? Do you Do you know what would happen if just the Christians stopped feeding the pornography industry in L.A.? Just LA, just LA. The Christians stop feeding the pornography industry. Do you know what would happen? It would fall. It would fall. Wanna know why? Because there's a lot of us. But it, if we just stopped feeding that industry, fall. Not only that, is all the people who are hurting and bound and broken would go, oh, "You're free. I want that." And they'd get free too. It would transform. Transform. That whole industry fall. And as those of you don't know, the pornography, human trafficking is all kind of webbed together. It's bad. Very bad. Do you know what would happen if Christians fostered children in L.A.? Just L.A. No more abuse. I don't know if you guys know about the foster care system, but it's pretty bad. Christians, I'm talking about people who are trees of righteousness, not using kids as a meal ticket or not abusing them. I'm talking about Christ followers. If we were to foster children in L.A., it would not take very many of us. A few hundred. (laughs) Change their life forever. Do you know where most of the kids in residential treatments are going? Most percentage? They're on drugs now because they put them on medication. It's like a nice little leash. They're 18. They get liberated off the drugs. Do you know where most end up? Prison. It's a great system. We pay for them when they're kids and we pay for them when they're adults. But anyways, it's not changing their life. But what would happen? What, what, what about maybe just that boy or that girl next door to you who's maybe in a bad situation? You know what you could do if you just befriended them, mentored them? My, one of my friends, I've had, I actually have a number of friends like this, but one of my friends... He's a follower of Christ. He's a leader in God's church. He's whole, blessed right now. Why? Because when he was growing up in an abusive home, chaotic home, and he was one of the most... You would look at that kid, my friend, when he was a teenager, and say, that's rebellious, that's destructive. I mean, he burned his neighbor's field on accident. I mean, he tried to blow up cars, but somebody took him to church. And that's why he follows Jesus, and that's why he's in tree of righteousness now. Because somebody loved him when he was a rebellious teenager. What does it look like? What if the widows in our generation were single moms? And maybe they don't need a handout, but maybe they need support. We, I know I've seen people in our church who have come alongside single parents to be a mentor to their children. It's amazing. Maybe that's, what are those, that's, maybe that's what it means to care for orphans and widows in this generation which is fatherless. And, of course, you know, literal orphans and widows as well. See, what would it look like if we, instead of, being, instead of just being a prophetic voice against what's bad, I mean, I think it's good that we would say things like, for example, like abortion is bad, killing unborn children. But, you know, hey, it's a complicated political issue. What if we just got rid of some of the politics of it, but what if instead we were the answer? You know, in the early church, back in those days, uh, the people of the world, they didn't abort children, but when they had them, they'd leave them on the rocks and just let them die or be eaten by animals. You know who went and found them? Church. See, the church of that day, they didn't have a political voice. But they were the answer. Do you see what I'm saying? They were salt and light. They adopted those children. I'm not saying we shouldn't say things are wrong not wrong. I mean, if they're wrong, let's say it. But what if we were the answer instead? But like I said, what does this really come down to? Maybe this just comes down to you going to work and you look at someone's eyes and you see that they're not doing so good and you actually stop and say, how are you doing? Sometimes the most important thing we could do for somebody is give them our self, right? Give them our time to listen to them and care for them. Maybe the best thing we could do is among our brothers and our sisters to look for ways we could meet tangible needs in their life. And in a church environment like this, it's important that those who are receiving the need also take responsibility to be discipled and that kind of thing as well um, and to communicate their needs. But what, what would it look like for us to reach out? You know, we do this uh, real quick. Let me just mention that. We do, we started going to a neighborhood once a month. Or I'm sorry, once a week we go to a neighborhood. We Kind of called it, we've adopted the neighborhood. And I want you to understand that that neighborhood we go to, that's us. They're our church now. Or once a month, I'm sorry, once a week on a Monday night, we feed uh, people a hot meal. Charles leads that. In. It's, a, it's a food ministry. And many homeless people come. Maybe 30, 40 people. Not every night, but I mean, a lot of people. That's, that's, that's us. That's our church. Those are our people. So what does it look like to see the people of this community as, as us? To see that single mom, to see that orphan, to see that homeless person. And instead of saying, you know, a lot of times we can close up our hearts and just say, you know, become cynical, can't we? Or overwhelmed with the needs of this world. But what if it, what, would it, what would it look like if it was just the person right there in front of us? And you could help with that. You could come on a Monday night and help with the food ministry. You could come on Saturdays and help with the adopt-a-block um, Why are we doing the adoptive block? Because that's where we're going to find orphans and widows. I mean, not the only, but do you see what I'm saying? We're going into a neighborhood to go and be Jesus so we can find people that we could reach out to and serve. You could do that, but you could also do something right there in front of you. Maybe you're driving down the street, and instead of closing up your heart, next time you give them some food that's in your car, or you invite them to lunch. So say we all go out to lunch today. Somebody's homeless. Just invite them to join with. You know, there's times where I've just driven down the street and I just stop and I just sit on the bench with them. I know some of the homeless people in the area because of our food ministry, but I just sit there on the bench and talk with them. Maybe it's not always giving them something tangible, but some giving them our, our love, giving them relationship and letting them know that we care about them. And let me, let me tell you, there are times in my life where I have been extended myself and given. There are times where I have done many of these things. And guess what? There are times where I haven't. There's times where I've been cynical. There's times where I have been hesitant to give. There's times where I have just been busy with my life. And I believe that the Lord wants to say this to us. I think that this is what the Lord wants to end with today and just leave us with this challenge from Deuteronomy 15. And it's something that we can all do Right now. Deuteronomy fifteen seven says this. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any, within any of your gates in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, listen, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need. Whatever he needs. Beware lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, and he goes on he describes some economic things. But he, bottom line, listen to what the Lord is saying. Deuteronomy 15. Do not harden your heart. And I believe what the Lord would say to us is, open heart, open hand. The question is, who is right there in front of you? What is the Lord calling you to do? Who is there in your life that you can serve and be Jesus to them? And guard your heart against that hardness of heart, that cynicism where you'd close up your heart or close up your hand. And live your life with open heart. And live your life with open hand. And extend yourself to people. Give yourself away to people. And I believe in this way as we share Jesus with people, discipling the nations, and as we seek to give to people, to love them like Jesus loved them, to do acts of justice, to take care of the poor take care of the orphan and the widow, that in that way we'll see the kingdom of God extended. And we'll see, we can see even this community transformed. But is it going to happen because like uh, one preacher is really cool and everyone wants to hear that preacher? Or is it going to happen because tons of Christ followers are carrying the gospel on their lips and doing acts of justice? You guys know the answer, right? It's when we saturate this community with lots and lots of life groups who are doing family on mission, who are being Jesus to people in word and deed. That's what will change this community. That's what will change families. That's what will restore cities. That's what will transform nations. That's what will transform that that boy or that girl's life that's in your neighborhood. That's what's going to heal that marriage. That's what's going to bring people to Jesus. Amen? All right, Clint, lead us in response.